You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, attorney Dan Mayer and licensed counselor, Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are welcoming Katie Vernoy. Katie is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has always loved leadership and began stepping into management positions soon after gaining her license in 2005. Katie's experience spans many leadership and management roles in the mental health field. Program coordinator, director, clinical supervisor, hiring manager, recruiter, and most recently as past president of the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. Now in business for herself, Katie provides therapy, consultation, or business strategy to support leaders, visionaries, and helping professionals in pursuing their mission to help others. Katie is also the co-founder and co-host for Therapy Reimagined and the Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast. We're guessing that you might have heard of Katie before, and so we're really (laughs) glad to have Katie here. Uh, We've known Katie for a little bit now, and uh, we're really glad that she can be on the podcast. So welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. I've been wanting to do some sort of a collaboration with you too. So it's exciting to to be here and, and getting this started. Back to back weeks, you know, where we've recorded podcast episodes where we've had someone on, we're like, we know this person. Like, <laughs> they're, they're awesome. So it's, yeah, it is. I mirror what, what uh, Melissa said. It's, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about making a big career change today. And um, one of the things that I noticed, Katie, is we're talking about your role now and a role that you've had previously is that leadership has always been a part of that. But in making that big career change, can you talk with us a little bit about that just to kind of open us up today? Sure. I think it's something where, and, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. I think that leadership doesn't require followers and or or employees or direct reports or whatever that is. But I think leadership is a way of being. And so I think mm-hmm. I've, I've been able to sustain it. But what what actually happened is I when I was a young lass and I decided I wanted to go into being a therapist, I kind of imagined staying in public mental health. I was my I was working in community mental health at the time. I was I was thinking about how I can continue to advance and kind of that like what is my career trajectory. And once I, once I got licensed, you know, I went through grad school and got licensed. I wanted to run a nonprofit. I wanted to be an executive. I wanted to have a big program. And I, I got there to a certain extent. I didn't get to the top, but I, the last management position I had, I had 40 employees. I had a $5 million budget. And I was, I was working with the, the most uh, intensive cases. It was called intensive services in South Los Angeles. And there were parts of it I absolutely adored. And then there were parts that were so toxic and so beyond what was really reasonable to expect, it became really hard to continue. For example, um, I got hired, I think I usually kind of got promoted at the beginning of the year. It's, you know, it's January 6th or something. Oh, that's a bad date to say. It was January, whatever. I don't remember what day it was. (laughs) And I was handed 25 basically job postings that I needed to fill. And they said, do it in two weeks. Now, for Mm. any folks that actually have their own practices, you realize that that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But see, I supposedly had this system. 
And I knew from all of the previous managerial positions that I had before that hiring 25 people in two weeks, not not only is ridiculous, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't even get that many resumes from HR in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And they were not like 25 therapists. It was all different types of positions. And so when I pushed back and I said, two weeks is not realistic. They're like, oh, we know. Just do it as quickly as you can. And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. Um, So you're putting an expectation on my job evaluation that is absolutely Mm -hmm. impossible. You're not working with me to get a more reasonable thing. And being a younger, much younger actually at this point, uh, ambitious, energetic young woman, I went, here we go. And I hired folks and maybe it wasn't two weeks. It might've been two months. And I got so many positions filled. Mm. And then I had so much turnover. It was so bad. I had people literally limping out. And I was trying to learn the program. I had worked as kind of a secondary manager in that program, but some of the, some of the pieces I, I didn't know about. I was trying to be supportive of all of these new staff members. Anybody that's done any onboarding knows how intensive it is to bring new folks on. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I literally was having people walk in and tell me like every day I'm leaving because they just couldn't get it. Or I had to fire folks because I, they were just so misaligned with the position. And it was something where I just was, I was struggling. And so I finally started kind of making my way and getting to a place of groundedness about six months, seven months into the position got an actually a decent midterm review. (laughs) And then a few months later, because, you know, productivity wasn't exactly where it was supposed to be, or this was going on, or that was going on, you know, kind of systemic issues that just I could not solve given how I was set up. I actually got asked to resign. Mm. Um, And I was devastated. I was so burnt out. I was so, so upset about how hard it was for me to do this job. I, you know, there was a crisis of confidence. Um, there were folks that, you know, like there was managers and supervisors who were reporting to me who I, they, they clearly knew something was wrong, but I also wasn't able to support them and, and, and helping them manage their people. And so, uh, it was, it was a really low point for me. I, I then stayed on for another four or five weeks because, you know, like, Oh, you can stay on until January. So you can get the pension, blah, blah, blah which was a gift, but it was also just torture. Mm. And so during that time, I start looking at job postings like, okay, well, maybe I should take a step down. Maybe I should do things. But I would look at job, job postings and it would be, I would get exhausted by like halfway through the job posting. I was so burnt out. I couldn't even read about a job without just feeling tired in my soul. Mm. And so what I ended up doing is I said, okay, well, I've had this little tiny private practice for a while. I'm just going to do this and figure out what's next. And fortunately, I had a management consultant at different periods during that time who, who became a colleague and friend. And I asked her, I was like, what do I do? She's like, figure out what actually makes you happy. Figure out the things that energize you and you can figure out how you'll make a living later. And fortunately, as an executive, I did have a little bit of money saved. I was able to, to take a little bit of time. Of course, I was terrified and really didn't take that time, but I had it available. And I slowly started building a private practice. And so for me, once I realized, okay, I don't want to be employed by someone else anymore because there's so much that can go into that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to start building a company that I thought I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then making a, a long story short, uh, 
I basically recreated all the toxicity in my own practice <laughs> because I had been a manager. So I was the worst manager for myself. I was working 15 hour days. I was setting productivity standards for myself. I was doing all the things that I absolutely hated. And it's taken, I guess it's been, I've been in private practice for 12 years now. It's taken a, a good chunk of that time to really identify what is it that I want my practice to do for myself and how do I know my own mind? Because mm -hmm. you walk into entrepreneurship after being on the, the corporate slash, you know, agency mindset, you have 27 million things that you can do. And they keep telling you, like, you have to do this. You have to write a blog. You have to do this. You have to, do, you know, like get into this coaching or that coaching. Like there's so many messages about what you should do mm -hmm. that I realized I had to, I had to dig in deep and, and learn and know myself before I mm -hmm. could really build the practice that I wanted. So anyway... I, I, it's funny because I was like, I need you guys to tell me to ask questions to get through the story. But apparently I had a story ready to go. So yes, you did. That's my story, yeah, yeah. Melissa. That's my story, Dan. <laughs> See, there you go. See, you were saying, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. There you go. I have it. I had, apparently it was there. So you, you said that you had your practice for 15 years and that 12, a good chunk of that, sure. 12, sorry, 12. <laughs> and a good, a good chunk of that, you were learning how to be the better manager, right? Yes. So what steps were you taking to kind of self-correct there? What, what steps were you taking to kind of help with your own mental health and wellness? You know, what did you do to make that course correction? Some of it was really trying to learn from a lot of different folks. Um, I think that I've seen folks like they pop into a certain coaching program or mastermind or those kind of things. And they stay in the same place for a very long time. And so you're getting a lot of the same information. And this happens within our profession. I'm sure, Dan, it happens within yours. And mm -hmm. then it also happens with entrepreneurs at large. It's like, this is my coach forever. This is my community forever. And people are lifers. I'm, I'm a little bit of a, of a skeptic. I'm a little bit of a, a rabble rouser. And so I don't stick all the time. And so I've learned from a lot of different folks. And I think that really helps. And what I've come to determine is when you're able to take lessons from different folks and really figure out for yourself what it is that works for you, you know, kind of fill in that lack of knowledge with knowledge, but critically look at it and not accept it at face value, actually play around with it and understand it. I think that's how I've been able to build for myself what I needed because I started with community mental health mindset. And I think a lot of folks that, that enter into their practices, whether they were a manager or not, have internalized that. Mm -hmm. And so it's about being productive and it's doing, doing things. And so at first I was, I was spending hours connecting to people on LinkedIn because it was a task and there was a number that was growing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's so silly because mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I could probably do a lot with my gigantic LinkedIn connections but it's something where I, I wasn't looking at what actually is going to make me money, what actually am I good at, mm -hmm. and how do I set up structures and, and, and things in place so that I can run my business smoothly. You know, at first it was just running as fast as I could because I was scared, because I, you know, I wanted to be productive. And at this point, and it's so funny because even this year has shifted for me where I went from working really hard at a lot of things. I've had another big transition. Um, I did a conference for four years and we've moved back from that. And so this year I'm not running cr like crazy trying to plan a conference. And my practice is making a lot more money. I'm basically working three days a week. I mean, it's one of those things where you know these things. Like I knew all of mm -hmm. these things. Sure. It's, it's that, that element of 
being able to really refine and make my own decisions and, and come to a place where I'm doing what works for me versus all the shoulds and the, the ideas from other people. Which is hard, right? You know, I think it's if, so hard. If, if you're a creative person, if you're a person with a lot of energy, there are always new possibilities, always new things to do. And again, all of those messages that we get for probably our whole lives about productivity and doing things, um, it can be really hard. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering, I hear you saying, when I, when I went into my own practice, I caught myself repeating some of those same things. And I'm wondering what it, what it was, or if there was a given moment where you said to yourself, whoa, like this is what's happening or that you realized that. I think when I started burning out again, Mm -hmm. um, I realized, oh, okay. You know, I think I had to recover. Um, and, and I've talked to a lot of folks who've left medium mental health where there is that period of time where there, there's a recovery required, I think, depending on, on how your experience was. And, and for me, that was meeting a lot of other people and getting actual validation versus, you know, kind of, kind of crazy looks because I wasn't doing enough in community mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I kind of healed from that and I started kind of getting into the rhythm of networking and seeing clients and doing all the things and then like expanding that out into the 15 hour days, I'm not recognizing that when you network and you go to coffee with somebody, that's work. That's mm-hmm. not fun. Um, it is fun, but it is still work. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, that was one of the mistakes I realized that I was making. But when I started burning out and having the kind of the Sunday scaries and I was, you know, kind of dreaming about vacation or, or those kinds of things, I was like, I'm enjoying my clients. I'm enjoying becoming an entrepreneur and I'm still exhausted. What did I do? And then I started looking at my schedule. And that's something I do with pretty much any client I ever get, whether it's a therapy client or a coaching client. I look at their schedule and say, is this actually a realistic schedule for you? Because my schedule was not realistic at all. And I, I just, you know, I'm so energetic. I love doing things, the shiny object syndrome, all that stuff. I'm like, woohoo, this is so exciting. People want <laughs> it's real. Me. Okay, I'll do that. People want me to do that? Okay, that sounds great. And then when I realized how burned out I was getting, I was able to back it down before it went, before it went over the top. Um, but then I was, I, was, I was able to get a little bit more deliberate in what I was doing and, and lock down my practice in a way that I, I didn't think to at the beginning. Yeah, and what I hear you saying is when you kind of took some things away, right? You saw a shift in other areas. Um, yes. But I think that that can still be really scary to do, right? Like we might know something, but doing it and implementing it can be something, you know, something else. Yes. I think that when we, when we aren't sure, it can be very scary to do things. But that is what entrepreneurship is for the, the most part. I think that's the thing, kind of all the, the big coaching programs that try to create confidence or security about what to do. I think that's, that's a gift. But it's also a trap because mm-hmm. oftentimes you must do these things or do it the way that I've done it. And so, so you're not getting into the space of doing your practice your way, right? And so for me, I, I like reassurance. I like direction. I like a to-do list that someone else has vetted for me. But I find that that only gets you so far. Mm-hmm. And so for me to try to be able to implement some of the things that I've learned from you know, a lot of different folks, a lot of different places, you know, decided to try myself, whatever it is. I try to get very quiet and to myself um, 
and avoid the, the trap of seeking reassurance so that I can trust myself. And I think it, it also gets to a place of, of being very much in a kind of an experimentation mindset versus a success failure mindset. And so for me, it's like, I, I work at it because I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, you know, like all the things like I hate feeling and I'm doing air quotes. Um, but I think if, if we're able to actually take our own counsel, um, it becomes more solid for us to be able to move forward because there's so many shoulds in our profession. Mm-hmm. So many, you know, like you go into any Facebook group and you say something and you're going to at least get half the comments saying, well, you should have done this. Or you should do that. And it's like, wait a second. You know, there are some hard and fast things, you know, looking over here at Dan, the, the lawyer, you know, there's laws. In that. <laughs> but, there are things but, you must do. There are things you can do. There are things you should do. And knowing the difference between all three of them. Yes. And there is a difference is important. Yeah. And I think that's the big piece is that there's so many people that, that treat nice to do's or this is what I was taught to do as you should do it this way. Mm-hmm. And for me, it, it, I just keep coming back to critical thinking. We need to be looking at it and, and finding our own source material, making sure that we're actually understanding something as it is, not what the Borg thinks it is. Mm-hmm. Because that, yeah. that gets really dangerous. I think there's also value to, because I, I remember a long time ago, someone once said to me, when I was starting my practice, they said, you know, never lose sight of the fact that you need to make sure that you understand whether you're going to be working in your business or you're going to be working on your business. Yeah. You know, are you working for your business or is your business working for you? Right. And yeah. that's what they were saying was you're either an employee or the CEO, right? You can't mm-hmm. do both. And so business owners, I think fall into a trap. Sometimes it's very easy to fall into a trap of like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And very quickly, what happens is you're not focused now on developing your business. You're not focused on, you know, making that thrive. You're not focused on just doing the daily, you know, regimental work that sure it needs to be done. But the question always comes down to, is that work to be delegated? Is that the best use of your time? Is there someone else who could be doing that for you? So you can be doing the other stuff, like you said, that you should be doing, you know? Well, I I don't know if I agree with all of that, but I agree with most of it. But the thing that you can't be both the CEO and the employee, Mm -hmm. I don't agree with. Okay. I think as therapists, I think we have to be our star employee. And we also have to be a CEO. Um, I think if you're a group practice owner, I think you can move into a CEO if you're not really seeing clients or if you're seeing very few clients. But I think when you're, when you're a business owner and the product or the service is mm-hmm. you, sure. I think you have to think of yourself as an employee and actually treat that employee very, very kind of nurture that, that star employee. And I think the problem is that when we go into full on CEO mode um, and we don't know what that actually looks like, what mm-hmm. a, what a, a positive leader looks like, mm-hmm. we become the punitive CEO to our star employee and our star employee burns out. And so to me, I I think it's, it's understanding, and this is for solo practitioners or folks with gigantic group practicers, really understanding what solid leadership is, Mm -hmm. I think is so critical because if we aren't leaders, we aren't able to be good therapists. If we can't take care of ourselves as our, as our star employee, if we can't take, if we can't set up the business around ourselves as the therapist to be able to do it. If we can't think critically about all of the inputs that are coming in. Sure. 
then I think we get too far off. I think being able to balance those two roles, I think is really, really hard. And I think, it, I think a lot of folks, and I think the, the simplicity of the statement, Dan, is, you know, mm-hmm. make sure you're still the CEO. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Right. Yeah. Because so many people that go into business don't because they just follow the, the rules that other people mm-hmm. have set that may have nothing to do with the business they want to build. 100%. Um, but I think it's, it's something where if you don't know how to be a good CEO, it'll be better to, to work on your business, but you mm-hmm. may create a business that just is really, really hard on you as an employee mm-hmm. of yourself. Yeah. And as you're talking, Katie, I'm thinking about like this idea of like being the boss t- to yourself, right? What kind of boss are you to yourself? I know I've made comments to people. I was volunteering once and I was at a meeting. I was like, I have to head out. I have a really strict boss. And <laughs> someone was like, I thought you had your own practice. Most I'm like, I do. I'm talking about me. And, um, yeah. I make you know, though. and I hear you talking about self-leadership, self-direction and, and these kinds of concepts. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that? What that means, what you've learned about it? I think the, the big piece when I'm talking about self-leadership, some of it's critical thinking. Some of it is confidence, I think. And, and a lot of it is knowing who you want to be as a leader. Because even, even as a therapist, I think when you're a very collaborative therapist, this may feel a little bit different. And I'm a very collaborative therapist, but you're still the leader in that room. Mm-hmm. There's still someone paying you for your expertise. And so, so being able to understand yourself as a leader and how you want to show up, I think is really, really important. And some of that is confident because if we're constantly doubting the decisions we're making in our business, the same as if we were doubting the decisions we're making in the clinical space, we're following other folks, we're following protocols, we're following those things. We are less flexible to what's actually happening in our business or in the room with a client. And so being able to have a groundedness of who I am, what I value, what mm-hmm. am I here to, what am I putting out to the world? What am I here to do? If we don't know what those things are, it's hard to make decisions. It's mm-hmm. hard to be you know, kind of flexible and dynamic in all the situations that we face as clinicians and business owners. And so to really see yourself as a leader, even a leader of your own life, <laughs> if not a leader of your practice or a leader in your community or whatever it is, I think is really important. But it, it comes down to feeling confident that you know yourself mm-hmm. and you know what you're doing. And our clients need us to be that way too, right? Yes. Imagine if you're yes. going to a provider and you feel a doctor, any type of provider, and you get the sense that they aren't feeling really confident about what to do in the room, right? Yeah. Like you need them to have a certain sense of groundedness and, mm-hmm. and confidence. I think that's something also that comes only with experience, good and bad, you know, just, you know, learning, sometimes learning the hard way, because I think everybody's prone to, or most people are at least prone to that imposter syndrome, you know, that's, you know, am I really as good as I think I am? Right. And I think the mark of someone who's truly um, a visionary, someone who's truly has that goal in mind, right? Has this vision of like what I want to do. That's what's enables them the power through those thoughts to be the leader, like the leadership you're talking about. Because if you're sitting in there, I think I feel like I'm not a clinician, but I feel like if I'm a we're a clinician, I'm sitting in a session with a client. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? And I'm projecting, <laughs> right? And I'm projecting that to the client. Like, can you imagine what the client must be thinking? Like, you know. But that's where I think like that ability to kind of okay. I may not know what I'm doing, but I can figure it out, 
right? Or I can mm-hmm. know who to go to or what sources to go to to try to learn this. I think it's really important learning experiences to get to where that point that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I think that the the thing that we're talking about is a high level of leadership within yeah. your practice or a high level of competence within your clinical work. I think self-leadership is available and possible for folks in grad school. I think mm-hmm. it's something where when we enter into this profession, there are a lot of us that do it because of our life experiences, uh, the traumas that have, that have happened to us, the, the therapy that we had in the past that either was really good and we want to be just like them or it was really bad and we want to give it better to people that are in our same situation. I know that's a broad generalization, but I think it, it holds. And we must have done at least some of our own work to be able to not bring any of those insecurities or traumas into the room with our clients as much as possible. I work human. And so to me, having a sense of who we are and how we show up in the world separate from being a therapist, I think is important. Um, I was having a conversation with a um, both new therapist as well as a young therapist about identity. And I think part of being a therapist is reflecting back and kind of meeting the clients where they are and especially if we, we go with the old school blank slate, if you don't know who's behind that blank slate, if you're only a mirror of your client, you're, you're not really knowing yourself. And so to me, I feel like self-work and being able to understand yourself and how you want to show up speaks to values, morals, mission, vision, whatever it is, because those are the things that the decision to become a therapist from that place, that's a, that's a decision of leadership. And so I think it is available even early on. I think it shifts. I think it becomes more advanced as we start learning to be a therapist and we start learning to be a business owner. But I think it is available for folks if they have done the work, if they can do the work. Um, and I think it's important that we, we prioritize that. I think community mental health sees therapists as cogs in the machine. Like they aren't individuals as much as we would like them to be. And that doesn't promote individual leadership either. Yeah. And and what you're saying makes me think of something I often tell, you know, whether they're interns or clinicians who are at our offices, the gift is you, right? Like you are the gift and who you are and what you bring to the table is unique. So yes, there are many clinicians that a particular person could be working with, but there's nobody else who can be you in the room and whatever you have to bring to the table, whatever it is that you have to offer is unique to you. So bring that and understand the worth in that. Absolutely. And so I think I, basically what I'm saying to use your metaphor is you want when the when the box is open, the gift of you, the box is open, you want it to be filled with stuff. You don't want it to be mm-hmm. an empty box. Mm-hmm. There's any number of books that have been written. And I feel like there's any number of people have a different opinion on this. But I want to hear from you. You know, since you coach and you work with those in leadership and you work with those developing leadership and what are the, what are three traits you think that are really emblematic of somebody who's a leader in your book? So it's interesting because I I've that's the three traits probably have shifted over time, and I, sure. I'm gonna I, I'm thinking of one, and so I think out loud. I'm I'm an extrovert in that way, so I will see if I can come up with three. Is that okay, Dan? I'm, I'm yeah. How are you? I I, I just was curious to see if there were any <laughs> traits you, you could point to that you, in your opinion, are like yeah, this is a trait of somebody who's going to be who's a leader. Uh, I think the first trait, and this is something that has always been important to me. My dad was a leader. He was uh, definitely someone who always was able to show up 
and collaborate with so many different people. And to me, that is how stuff gets done. And so I didn't realize that my dad recently passed. And so we were having, we were eulogizing him and a lot Mm -hmm. of folks kept talking about how he would collaborate and he would collaborate. And I was like, I always talk about collaborating. I got it. I got it righteously. And um, for me, a collaborative uh, approach, someone who can be collaborative, who can allow different voices, can welcome, can encourage different voices to come together and truly understand what's going on. To me, if you are not able to collaborate, you're, you're a, a boss or a manager, you're not a leader. You're just telling people what to do. So to me, the, the, the collaborative spirit is number one. Let me think, what's number two? I think that groundedness and knowing mm. yourself, I think if you, if you are a leader that is only a reflection of what the people who are surrounding you want sure. you to be, that is a mask. It's not true leadership. And so being grounded in who you are, what you want to do. So someone that's very grounded. And even though this is a little bit more traditional leadership, I do think confidence is, is, a, is something that I think is helpful. And it, it doesn't need to be, I am confident. I know everything. I confident. I am the, the answer in every situation. I'm confident that this is how things should be. Um, in leadership development studies, top-down leadership is actually only halfway up leadership identity development being able to get to that collaborative space and, and having leaders at every seat at the table mm-hmm. is, the, is the absolute epitome of really good leadership. And so being able to navigate that and feel confident within yourself and grounded in who you are and what you're bringing, I think allows for true leadership um, and, and something that, that moves it up and down. I'm moving my hands. So I'm like, I, I don't know <laughs> if anybody's <laughs> understanding what I'm saying that can't see my, my hand movements, but but it's something where it's very fluid and dynamic. I think if you start getting to, into to rigidity or musts or have tos, um, I think you you step out of leadership and really get more into kind of directive, authoritative or authoritarian management and being a boss. Um, sure. And so I think leadership is a little bit more of this philosophical state, and I think anyone at any seat at the table can display leadership. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing, right? Is that regardless of where you are, what role you're in, right? That self-leadership or leadership is an option. If you are in grad school, if you are a new grad, or if you are in a position of power or like formal leadership, right? That self-leadership or leadership abilities can come through at any stage, any role. And I think wherever you are, if you're in grad school, if you're a new grad, if you are maybe new to being an actual manager, that imposter gremlin can show up, that insecurity can show up um, as you're facing these new challenges or these new things in your role. And I'm wondering, what are some things that you think people can be doing to kind of grow into that groundedness, whether they're in grad school, new grads, or new to man, like a formal management position? What are you, what are some things that you think people can be doing as that, I don't know, that loud inner critic start showing up? Well, I think the first thing is really owning it. I think some people, if they step into it and they feel like they somehow tricked people to promoting them, or I can't believe people actually want to work for me or whatever it is, I think owning, I've taken this step. And if, if it's something that is really hard to kind of capture and understand, like I have stepped into this leadership role, this is what I'm doing. Maybe I don't feel totally prepared for it. Maybe I'm not the best person for the job yet. Maybe whatever. Um, I think being able to understand intention and and ownership of what actually is, I think is important. 
Sure. If you're not able to do that, if you're not able to see the intention to do a good job and to, to, to put your all into it and you can't own, this is my role, whether I feel ready for it or not. Mm-hmm. I think that's when it's really important to talk to a therapist or a coach about what is getting in the way of being able to see yourself in this role. Because I, I've, I've had folks where it's just kind of getting used to the idea. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm in management now. Okay. <laughs> and what does that mean? Right. Um, and then there's, you know, and then there's other folks that are just like, I know I'm in management and I think I'm the worst person ever to be in this. And I can't mm-hmm. believe that this is happening and I'm going to fail. And, and there's obviously a lot of anxiety and there's a different perspective there. I think that when we talk about the imposter gremlin, we have to comment on the fact that there are some folks with marginalized identities who don't just think they're an imposter. Everyone else is telling them that they are. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's also being able to have advocacy and, and self-advocacy as well as making sure in the right spot so that there's not this element of people assuming that you're the token hire or assuming that you're not good mm-hmm. enough or, or treating you as though you're not the manager or you're not the manager of your own practice or whatever it is that you, you create to whatever extent you're able to an environment yes. in which you can thrive. Mm-hmm. So I think that is super hard. I see Dan yeah. ready to say something. No, I was just, <laughs> I'm, I'm right. I thought that was a really astute answer. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, dad. <laughs> well, and, and also like the, I'm glad you said that, right. The difference being one might be an internal voice, right. Sure. My own insecurity coming from within myself versus sure. actually having had other people or society external messages from outside of myself yeah. saying that I'm not welcome, that I don't measure up or, or whatever other messages are there. Or, or that the way you're doing it doesn't line up. Like I, I'm an ambitious woman. And I have always been told I'm too much. I'm a steamroller. Sometimes kind of, who do you think you are? I, you know, and especially being an ambitious, slightly more masculine woman in mental health, I would sing the praises of my team. I would make a big deal about, like, I took on, this was earlier than this last experience that we talked about at the beginning, but like, I took on a program that was like the abandoned, barely running program. It's the Welfare to Work program in California. And I took it from barely functioning to growing the budget fourfold, fivefold, and getting awards for excellence and innovation. And I was going to sing the praises for myself, for my team. I was like, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. We weren't even on the website. Like the the agency didn't own us until until we started doing this stuff. And I literally got feedback from a manager saying, there are some clinicians who are not on your team that feels like it's really, um, it's not inclusive that you're praising they didn't say it this way, but kind of, it wasn't inclusive that I was praising my team over everyone else. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I've grown the budget of this program like five <laughs> times. I'm bringing in more money to this clinic. Sure. I'm, I've, I've, I'm improving productivity. All these folks were sitting at productivity that was like in the 20 to 30%. They're all at like 60 or 70%, which was what the standard was. This program is bringing us accolades and you're telling me I need to be quiet about it. Mm. I was like, oof. You know, are you not grateful? What? <laughs> Don't you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's it's something where I can speak as a woman that that I have been told to be quiet and sit down and oh, yeah. not be so big and bold and and ambitious. Um, but I I also am white and I come from privilege and I know that there are folks who are who are completely disregarded for leadership or or having competency and skill because of 
other parts of their marginal, marginalized identities. And so to me, I think it's, it's something where the masks that sometimes we have to wear professionally or the, the roles we have to play or the self-advocacy that has to happen sometimes is just uh, immense and really unfortunate. But I think mm-hmm. as, as more and more folks that have all different backgrounds and all different characteristics get into leadership positions, I think we're better situated to have these environments where folks can step into leadership and maybe not have that external imposter. Yeah. Well, I also think that to your point, you know, the more diverse leaders you have, the more um, an opportunity you have to help develop the next generation of leaders. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. We, we can't, we can't create what we can't see. Right. Right. Because if it, you know, to your point, if you're, you know, at one point in time where women or minorities were marginalized from leadership or kept from leadership possessions, kept from advancement, I think the change has now enabled entire generations now to grow up believing that they can be leaders, they can be executives, they can be CEOs, they can be all these things. Um, And I think that that's and without question, I don't think anyone could to 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 disagree with the statement that that's completely changed the the way every business in general is sure. is how cultural how corporate culture is. Oh, for sure. And I think the the thing that when I was I I did a podcast episode on executives and emerging leaders, and mm-hmm. I was doing a little bit of research, and um, there there's this notion of kind of the traditional leadership style, which is that kind of authoritarian top down. And that's typically kind of the leadership that historically have been white men. (laughs) 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 And then there's this more collaborative, you know, kind of all the leaders, you know, sitting at the table together, leadership can come from any seat, which is really um, a more effective way has, has, has grown as we've had more diverse leadership because there's more of an acceptance. And I think part of it is I think about like a top down leadership style, you have to fully accept and, and put someone on a pedestal to have them in that spot. And so some identities, you just, you don't get put on a pedestal that easily. And so got to work with everybody and let's figure out how to do it. You know, whether it's survival or, or the strongest strategy, I think it it's, I think it's moving things in a good direction. I also think there's a cultural shift, a huge cultural shift that's happened that the millennials, um, generation Z, you know, there is a different mentality. I, I sense, you know, I'm not of those generations. Uh, I'm probably the very end of generation X, maybe a little bit closer to millennials, but you know, I think there's a uh, definitely a, a shift in how work-life balance and how the approach to leadership, to being engaged in business and in corporate world and whatever it is, it has shifted as well. Um, yes. And I, so I think that the meaning of what leadership is, and like you said, what what why has it changed from that top down? Why is that no longer the best way possible forward? Because I think actual cultural norms have shifted completely. Oh, completely agree. I, th- I think the stereotypical generational differences anyway are boomers are top down and millennials on down are are more kind of collaborative, flat management systems, right. that kind of stuff. And as usual, if, if you're Gen X, uh, I well, as well, yeah. <laughs> we get left out of the mix, but uh, <laughs> I always feel like I'm in that sort of a, a elaborate collaborative, you know, like I feel know, like I'm in the lost generation we have. I'm I'm like in that weird generation gap that doesn't have a name, whereas like 
I grew up with Al computers and then also had computers. Like I remember when you had three or four or five cable channels. And then I also now like living in an age where we have Netflix and, you know, I've had both. Um, yes. And so I, 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 there's a whole segment of like population from like 19, what, 75 or 78 or 77 to like 1980 or 82 that doesn't fit in any of those molds. <laughs> exactly. But I think they've, they've been co-opted by Gen X because we absolutely gotten to. <laughs> right. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and you have my wheels turning, right? Thinking about all these different aspects of leadership, right? And how... It's impacted, right? Generationally or based yeah. on our, our background, based on our gender. Um, yeah. I, it's reminding me, I did this business program recently. It's a well-known business program. And I think sometimes you don't think about what messages you've been exposed to until there's something that raises it to the surface. And in this business program, one of the things that I noticed was um, how many women they had in these leadership positions. And I was surprised when I saw all of these women in in leadership in this business program, right? But my surprise caught me off guard a little bit. And I took a moment to just say, wow, like the fact that you are experiencing surprise, that you are seeing women in leadership in a business program tells you something that the people you've been seeing in leadership positions in business, I mean, outside of our world and like therapy. Yeah, we've got a uh, lot of leaders, right? female leaders in our, our business. <laughs> yes. But, you know, in, in the larger world, the fact that I was surprised to see that I really took note of, wow, like there are some images or messages that you've received that you are experiencing surprise at all. Yeah. And so it really makes you think about things that we've been exposed to messages or, you know, without even realizing that it's integrated in there. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So question for you, what, what do you, this is totally off the cuff. I mean, I'm just okay. curious to see if you have it. <laughs> I'm up. What do we got? You know, <laughs> what do you think the future holds with when cars leadership? What do you think, you know, where do you think it's headed in terms of leadership and what's needed to be a leader as we kind of move forward now? Because we really are, I feel like um, in the process of a transitional generation where there's a, there's a transition happening, I think, from, you know, not just the 20th century, the 21st century, but also completely how society's changing in ways that for decades, it didn't change as drastically. Am I, am I making sense here? And I yeah, feel I like mean, there's I think a the new biggest change is, is kind happening. of pre-COVID, COVID, mm-hmm. post-COVID kind sure. of situation. I think that was huge dramatic changes in what mm-hmm. was required of leadership. As it's off the cuff, I will respond off the cuff. Uh, Whether it's the the generational changes and the societal shifts that we've been talking about or the the knowledge of what we can do really quickly in a global pandemic and how we would prefer to live um, based on a global pandemic, I think leaders really need to be able to be flexible in how they think about things Mm -hmm. because things could shift. I mean, there's all these conversations about going into a a global recession and mm-hmm. we're going to have to pivot and, and have our practices shifts. But I think that there's also, if you have employees, it's seeing them as whole people. It's seeing them as not widgets to fit in or productivity generators, but like actual people that are building your business with you. I think work-life integration versus balance, I think is going to be the, the, the word of the day. Because I think in truth, when we try to separate work and life, I think it, we couldn't do that. Most of us couldn't do that 
for two years during the pandemic. And some of mm-hmm. us are still at least partially working from home. And so being able to understand kind of a butts and seats, you know, you are grinding away is not going to be tolerated by most folks. And I can't tolerate it for myself. You know, like I've had mm-hmm. a lot of sure. different things happen this year that have led me to believe like I need to be living life. And I need to be spending time with the people I care about. And so I'm not going to just grind away and do, you know, session after session or new business project after new business project or all the things. Right. And so I think being able to understand for ourselves, as well as anybody that works for us, that, that being a true leader at this point is seeing people as a as a whole person within a array of experiences that they may have and, and being as flexible and nurturing and caring as possible to that while also finding ways to make sure that you're meeting your numbers and, and doing all the things that you need to do there. I think that's the real task of business leadership, I guess. I think, sure. I think when we're looking at other types of leadership, I think it's truly inclusive communication, collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at a very di- divided, simple message kind of society right now where you can't talk in nuance. I think to, to heal, we need to be able to think critically and, and speak with nuance and not absolutes and divided by party lines and divided by values and morals. Like I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of gray area that we're going to have to flexibly be able to to play around in so that we can have conversations to actually heal the world. I, I that maybe that sounds a little bit too. You know, it's usually, <laughs> I, yeah, I thought of, a, I thought of a quote that I'd heard um, within the last six months to, and you just made me think of it. And it was the, the quote really was centered on, it was an article I'd read and the person said, you know, that a lot of people feel like the world is coming apart and um, mm-hmm. you know, that things are just unraveling left and right. And the quote was, well, the mark of true leadership is the people who are true leaders are going to be the ones who lead us through this process and through the process of this unraveling and breaking apart and then kind of the coming back together again and this kind of unification that's going to happen down the road. And I thought that was such an astute point. And you just made me just remind me of that. Um, yeah. And I feel like that like may be that. why so many people feel unsettled now is it does feel like that. Right. Um, and people are yearning to try to figure out, you know, how do we kind of get through this moment to, to get to what's next? And for me, it's leaning in rather than disengaging. And I, you know, we hear about quiet quitting and even, mm-hmm. you know, people are counting, well, what about quiet firing? And, you know, all of those things. And to me, when we disengage, when we go back to our corners, sometimes that's needed for regrouping. But I think a lot of times it's, it's that we're not leaning in and engaging. We're not making the decisions we need to make. We're not coming. And to me, that's what self-leadership and kind of higher leadership is, is, is being willing to assess for yourself. What is it? Do I need? How, how do I communicate with this person in front of me? And, and what do I want to accomplish? Yeah. And as we're thinking about having to like charter new territories or kind of lean in and kind of, you know, get to the other side of what we're going through right now. One of the things that I often talk about with clients, I think we have this perception that leaders are fearless Right. If we think about any historical figure that we admire, we're like, yes, they were so brave and strong and they did whatever it is that they did. And I think we have this idea and maybe the story has been told to us in that way, how brave they were, who strong they were. And so I think we start to integrate this message that those 
well-known leaders must not have been afraid. Sure. Right. And so remembering we can be a leader, we can lean in, we can charter new territories, and we can do that even if we're afraid. That yeah. being afraid doesn't mean that we are not being a leader. It just means we're a real human and we can lean in even if it makes us nervous or is scary. Sure. Well, sure. I, and I remember this, like, I, this is great. Like you guys are reminding me, like, I remember that hearing something someone once say that, you know, it's okay to be scared, but it's not okay to let that hold you back. It's not okay to let that to prevent you from doing what you need to do. Um, and so when you talk about the leaders, you know, and who, who led through you know, tremendous or horrific times, I think that that, to your point, like it's, that's the mark of a leader is someone who's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 you know, this is scary, but I, you know, I'm going to carry on. And I'm, I'm, and I think that is the mark of a good leader. I think it's that phrase that whether it's confidence or bravery is being mm -hmm. scared and doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, mm -hmm. To me, I think it's, it's something where there are times when we're fearful and I think we should pay attention sure. to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I think that if, if we're, if we're grounded in who we are, what we want, why we're making the decision, not just because somebody else told me to do it, but like, this is a decision that I'm making because I see the benefit or I see a potential benefit and I'm experimenting um, I think we're able to weather a little bit more of that fear and and step through. If we can see why we're doing it, if we have a specific outcome in mind, I think that becomes a lot easier. I think there's there's so many folks and and taking it kind of into a smaller little scale, I see so many therapists who are so afraid to start a private practice mm -hmm. or to hire their first additional clinician mm -hmm. because they're, they're afraid, whether it's, they're afraid that, well, I'm going to, what if I get a client and I haven't set up my mm -hmm. practice yet? It's like, well then set up your practice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm so afraid, you know, and I'm, I'm like supposed to do this thing and I hate it and I don't see why I would do it. Well then don't do it. Mm -hmm. like, do the things that actually are going to work for you. I don't know how many people I finally told, just stop writing a blog. You don't want to. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and even thinking about what you're saying, like some of these new things, starting a practice, hiring someone new that whatever stage you are in your practice, there's mm -hmm. always going to be a new thing that scares you. There's always yeah. a new thing. You, you get over that one fear and then there's a new challenge and you're yeah. and that feeling comes up again and you're challenged with figuring out how you're going to get on that other side. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of you uh, stress. Um, there's a TED talk and other things, but kind of this idea of positive stress. I think we've all talked about it at some mm -hmm. before, but this idea that some of it's fear and some of it's excitement and some mm -hmm. of it's ramping up for the challenge. I, I try to remind myself of that whenever I'm facing something that feels terrifying is I start assessing like, well, if it's really terrifying, why am I doing it? Mm. Like, why am I not running the other way? And then sometimes mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, no, no, I should run the other way. This is mm -hmm. ridiculous. <laughs> there's other times because I see the potential benefit and I'm able to then think about the excitement and the energy and separate it out, which helps a lot. Yeah. Because if you can separate out the excitement and say, oh, no, this just, this just matters. This is something that I want to do. And, and my body is giving me extra energy to make sure I can do it. That, that always helps me a little bit. I'm going to remind myself of that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love that. Well, Katie, I want to be mindful of your time today. Yeah. You've given us a lot of really great nuggets, a lot of really important things to be thinking about. I think regardless of where someone is um, in their journey as a mental health practitioner, they have something that they can be thinking about and applying for themselves. 
So if people want to find you, they want to reach out to you, they want to find out what you're up to, how can they get in touch with you? I think the best way is going to my website, katievernoy.com. Awesome. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess I could also say, no, you know, that's the cool. Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast. No, no, that's cool. Yeah. But I think sure. I launch everything from that page. Don't give me the stink eye down. I have no, I'm not. No, it all goes out to separate websites, but I love it. Is on katievernoy.com. No stink eye here. I was like, I love it. It was so simple. In the same place. It It was just so simple. It was like, boom, go here. (laughs) I was like, I mean, I'm on social media and stuff as Katie Vernoy or as Therapy Reimagine or Modern Therapist Survival Guide. But but yeah, I think katievernoy.com gives you a sense of who I am and, and what I'm doing. And, you know, I just, I love supporting folks, especially emerging leaders to, to really step into leadership. And so it's been a pleasure to talk about this because obviously I love talking about it. <laughs> I went on and on. So thank you for giving me this space to, to chat about it. It was really fun. Thank that, you for thank sharing. You. Yeah. And thank you for joining us. So to everyone listening, we thank you for joining us as well and listening in. Um, I hope that you found this as inspiring and useful conversation. I think it's, it's a really important topic. You know, especially if you're if you have your own practice or you want to start your own practice, which we often talk about on this episode on this on this podcast, I should say. You know, this is this is kind of gets the heart of of what it takes to do that. As a reminder, to please be sure to check out our website, protectingyourpractice.com. If you are in need of forms, um, all therapists, all practitioners use forms, so we have some available. If you are interested, you can also uh, go through that and our Facebook page if you want to reach out to us. Um, and then if you're a Maryland, a Maryland clinician and you need legal services, you can also find me um, at DanielMayorLaw.com. And you can find um, Melissa um, at her counseling practice, LifespringCounseling.net. We appreciate you again for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit ProtectingYourPractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.